privilege to be with you guys. Greetings from Cape Town, the lekker, lekker lever daar. It's not too bad in Cape Town. I'm actually a bit outside of Cape Town these days. I'm in Komiki, in case you know where that is. It's even though you guys don't look like you know where that is. You don't. Okay, it's nice. Just trust me. All right, so this evening, I'm going to do a sermon slightly different from this morning. And I thought, what will bless God? And then I thought, what will bless Andre? And here it is, Taming the Lion. Yes, that is the choice. But uh, before we get going with that, um, we sang Amazing Grace for a song. Do you guys know the story of Amazing Grace, the song itself? You know who wrote it? It's a guy called John Newton. He lived in the 1700s. That is a while ago. And John Newton, he, um, he was born in a naval sort of family. His mother died when he was quite young. I think his mother, I speak on a correction, but I think his mum died when he was about 12 years old. And he was brought up without a mum and um, sort of got into a rough patch in his life. And then he joined the Navy. And in the Navy, he quickly got a reputation as a man without morals, a man that was without any scruples, a man that was rough. In fact, so much so that the other sailors looked at him and they thought he was a bit too rough for them. Now, I don't know about you, but a sailor is not exactly the guy that goes for a cup of rooibos tea and watch the seven alarm while he's doing some knit. I mean, those guys are rough. So if them that's at rough thinks this guy is getting too rough, then you know. And eventually he got uh, severely punished a couple of times in the Navy. He got lashed for, for punishment for things that he did wrong. And uh, then eventually he went into slavery. He became a captain of a slaver's ship. All right? This was an evil man. This is not a good man. This was an evil man. And his life degraded to the extent that his ship mutinied against him. They dropped him off at the West Indies where he himself was made a slave. Eventually his father managed to negotiate his release. And on his way back to England from West Indies, the ship started sinking. You know, like they say, there's no atheist on a falling plane. I don't think there's an atheist either on a sinking ship. And while the ship was sinking, he was calling unto God, and he said, God, if you will save me, I will serve you. And that's what God did. And John Newton said he has this two, or he said he had these two great convictions, that I am a great sinner, but that Christ is a great savior. That's amazing grace. Amazing grace was not written by some high-minded theologian in an ivory tower. It's not written by a guy that never saw life. It's written by a guy that really did the worst of the worst to people. And God saved him. God can save anyone. God can save me. God can save you. And God can save us to the uttermost. So this evening I'd like to look at uh, Taming the Lion. I'm thinking a lot of the words of Frank Ciccone. I really love Frank Ciccone and the work that he's doing and what he represents. And he says the following, The sin, the greatest sin of a church is limiting God to our level. Now just think about that for a moment. That, that sounds like a bit of a whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's just talk about it. The greatest sin of a church. Now the church is not perfect. If you expect the church to be perfect, you're in trouble. Church is not perfect. Because the church is filled with people like you and I. Church will never be perfect. 
on this side of eternity because it's full of people and people are mixed back, right? We're all growing, we're all developing, and sometimes we miss it. But hallelujah, church is not about the people that's in there. Church is about God and what God wants to do in people and through people. But now it sounds quite strange because surely the idea of church is that church is all about knowing God. I mean, you don't come here for the amazing coffee. I think the coffee is pretty okay. I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking. Remember, I'm a Cape Town snob, so, you know, we do coffee on a whole different level. But that's not why you're here. We, 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 don't do, we don't do church because of a comfortable chairs, right? It's not that comfortable. Surely we're here because we want to know God and we want more of God. But then it's interesting that somebody like Frank Ciccone says, the biggest issue that we often face is that we limit God. That is one of the greatest obstacles that we face, that we limit God. I want to tell you a little story, maybe as an analogy, to sort of illustrate this point. Um, you know, my wife and I, we come from obviously different households. That's good to know as well. We come from different families. And, uh, you know, in, in my family, um, holiday, you did the cheapest you could. But that was our family philosophy with holidays. I think our family was the only family that would come back from holiday richer than when we went away to holiday. That, that's my family. And um, from her family side, I mean, they would save up the whole year, and then they'll go big, big, and then they'll go home again. All right? So you can imagine our first couple of years of marriage, holidays was a bit of a tricky conversation, because I want to rough it there. I want to rough it. I want to take it easy, spend no money, and she just wants to go for the spa, and I don't know what else, all right? So marriage conflict 101, tough stuff. But anyway, and there was always this game farm that she wanted to go to. She heard of it somewhere, and she wanted to go to this game farm like, nah, I'm from a Kalahari game farm. Oh, please, man. I'm not in the mood for that. But, you know, you love your wife. You do whatever for your wife, Andre. You do whatever for your wife. Happy wife, happy life, right? That, you can take that home. You can put that in the bank. I'm sure that's in Noah 3 verse 3 in scriptures, you know. But anyway... So we save up and we save up, we go to the game farm, we get there. All right, I'm already a bit about this thing, but she's enjoying it, that's good. Happy wife, happy life, let's continue. Anyway, so we get there, long drive, I'm not going to tell you which game farm this is. All right, because the story does get bad here at the stage, but okay, let's go for it. So we pitch up there, and as we put our luggage down, we're in our nice sort of place that we're staying. Uh, they say, let's go for a game drive, and everyone's like, woo, game drive, and they're on this 4 by 4 and on this 4 by 4 no canopy, no sir, no, 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 360-degree view of the glory that is the game form. right? So that's good. Everyone is sitting high. It's lovely. So we drive. All right, and we drive and we drive and we drive, and eventually we get to a place, and a game ranger looks at us and he says, You are in luck. And we're like, Ooh, we're in luck. All right, and the game ranger says, There's a pride of lions in front of us. And we're like, Ooh, lions. All right, it's getting interesting. 
All right, and he says, let's get a bit closer. So we drive a bit closer, and then he says, but you don't know how much you are in luck. The lions, they just gave birth. There's a lot of cubs walking with the pride as well. And we're like, whoa, that's amazing. So we're driving, he says, listen, let's get a bit closer. But now we're getting closer and closer, and a part of my brain is telling me this is not Mazda Wildlife. You know, you can do a close-up with a camera, but you can do it with a camera. You know, not with your eyeball. There's a problem with the eyeball if you do a close-up to a lion. All right, so we're driving, we're getting a bit closer, and I'm like, you know, I'm a man of faith. But I'm also not stupid, you know. So we're getting closer, and we're driving then between like a little walkway almost, between two Bodies of water, two dams. It's, it's sort of hard to explain, but I think they build sort of a little land bridge in between. And as the lions are walking, we're following them with a four by four, no canopy, all open. All right? Now, just a little detail, by the way. Is anyone here from the United States? You are. All right, there is going to be a slight joke, but it's not aimed at the totality. There were some Americans with us. On that 4x4. Just hang on. No offense. We love you. We love United States. Let's keep on going. All right. So that's just a little detail there. So we're all sitting there. And we're following these lions on this little water, this little land bridge. And the next thing. The 4x4 falls into an artfark. What is that in English? Artfark? Artfark. It falls into a hole and it's stuck. But when I mean stuck, I mean it's stuck. I don't mean it's got a little dip. I mean I fell into a hole. And we're sitting there. And lions in front of us. And then, yes, then it gets better. It's like telemarketing. We look behind us and we realize the cubs is behind us. And the lions is in front of us. And this game ranger is getting nervous. He's like, nah, nah. and then he opens his cubby hole. And then he goes, Ooh, I forgot my gun. <laughs> All right. So the lions turn around. Because, hey, they want to get back to their cubs. And they can't walk the long way around because it's just water. So they start walking next to the vehicle. Now we're getting to the Americans. (laughs) Now everyone is starting to slide down the chair, you know. And I can see this American friend in front of me. He is thinking, I'm going to make a run for it. (laughs) He is doing this sort of thing. And you know, I didn't want to speak at that time because it felt like a moment of gravity. But if I could say something, I probably would say something in the line of my friend. I don't want you to run. But if you do, you will save all of us. (laughs) Anyway, long story short, the lions walk past us. And I tell you what, in that moment I realized there is a food chain and I'm not at the top of that food chain. I'm not at the top of a food chain. Now see as Lewis said. Speaking in the Chronicles of Narnia, and he's speaking of a Christ figure, Aslan, and he says of a Christ figure, he says, He is wild, you know, not like a tame lion. How tame is your Jesus? He's not tame. He's not tame. God is big. 
God is unconquerable. God cannot be limited. God cannot be put in a box. God cannot be figured out. God cannot be contained in a few statements. God cannot be described in a couple of experiences. God is big. How big is your God? You see, the problem that Frank Ciccone is pointing to is that we tend to try and tame Jesus. But that's the worst thing you can do because in the end of the day, you don't end with a lion of Judah. You end with a house cat that is not God at all. You see, we can go through our whole lives and feel that we're serving God, but we end off serving something else. And I tell you what the problem is. When the cookie crumbles, when the purple hits the fan, is there another idiom that I can give? When things really go bad, I don't need the house cat. I need the lion. I need the lion. I'll tell you what, there's two ways in which we often try and tame God in church. Can I quickly give you the two ways in which we do it? The one way in which we do it is that we tend to reduce our relationship with Jesus to a moral code. Is morality important? Yes. Being moral, is that important? Yes. But that's not the totality of a relationship with Jesus. What I mean? What I mean is that often our relationship with Jesus gets reduced to being a good person. And being a good person is important. Please, I'm not saying, hey, let's be bad to the bone or something like that. Please don't get me wrong. Being moral, being good, all that stuff, that is important. But I tell you what, the problem is that often we take our moral codes and our moral codes become everything to us. And in the process, we forget about God. And I look through the Bible and I am actually offended when I see who God works with. Think about that for a moment. We get so sanitized about scripture that we don't realize the rawness of the people that God often works with. Abram? Abram, really? You know what Abram did before he he heard God speaking to him? He didn't worship God. See, it's interesting, Jewish writers like Josephus writes about him and said that probably he was a moon worshiper. Really? And then we look at his character. I mean, this guy, please don't go for marriage counseling too. You know what he did. When he goes into the palace of Pharaoh, then he goes like, hmm. It's not my wife, it's my sister. I mean, like, how does that work for your marriage? You remember that story? He goes into the, the, the palace of the Egyptians, he's so afraid, and I think he did it twice. He was so afraid that he would be killed for his wife, but that part I also don't understand, because apparently they were quite old at that stage, so either the kings were desperate, or his wife was exceptionally beautiful, I don't know which is which, but the reality is, I mean, for your marriage to say, this is my sister, I mean, next time try that. If you really want a good argument at home, go like, oh, this is my sister, instead of saying, this is my wife, I mean, just don't, please don't give it a go, I don't want to give you extra work. But really, is that the guy? Moses? Moses was a murderer. I mean, imagine we go here and we say, hey, let's go and plant a church. Where are we going to plant a church, Andre? Pick a spot. King Williamstown, here we go. Who are we going to pick? Candidate A, candidate B, candidate... Ooh, this guy killed somebody. I don't know. All right. At least there will be some conviction in church. (laughs) Because if he tells you to do something, he doesn't have to say, or else. Because you know he's going to do that, or else. Um, But I mean, that's usually the last guy that you're going to pick, right? 
And yet God chose this man, David. I mean, David, the runt of a pack. Here's a guy that even his dad forgot him. Samuel says, get all your sons. He forgets his own son. Oh, 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 yeah, David. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's still with a sheep. Let's go and get him. And then we know what happens in his life. You see, moral codes, moral values, that is important. But I tell you what, in church we can spend so much time talking about morality that we remember that as a God that is vast. You know what's a real problem with moral codes? And I, I want to say this straight. I don't think that's an issue with you in this congregation. That's not why I'm mentioning it. But I do feel that as churches grow and develop, it does at some of the stage become an issue. And I'd just like to say something about that. Now, the Greeks had an interesting story in the Greeks. They've got weird stories. You don't, shouldn't read all these stories. But some of these stories are quite insightful. And there's a story of a man called Procrastus. And Procrastus was a elderly gentleman that had an inn next to the ocean. Uh, and you would, obviously in those days, you'd walk wherever you need to be. So you walk from town to town. And um, as people would pilgrimage or journey, they'll come past this inn. And Procrastus will be sitting on his stoop with his pipe with a cold drink. And he'll be sitting there. And he'll invite you to go and sit on the stoop. And go like, ah, oh, that's so nice. I can sit down a bit. I've been walking all day long. Ah, oh, this is good. And then he'll say, listen, don't you want something to eat? And then you'll go like, yeah, yeah, now that you talk about it, I would like something to eat. And um, he'll bring out some food. And then Procrastus will say to you, listen, but now you've drunk something, you've eaten something. Don't you just want to spend the night, sleep over a bit? And then you'll go, yes, that is an awesome idea. Why don't I think about that? I certainly want to sleep a bit here and just rest a bit. And here's the problem. When you go to the spare room, there's a certain bed. And this bed would be the length of what Procrustus saw the ideal Greek person to be. So in the middle of the night, remember this is a mythic story. I'm just telling it to sort of illustrate a point. I'm going somewhere, don't worry. And we'll get to scripture soon. Anyway, so in the middle of the night, you'll wake up and Procrustus will be standing next to your bed. And here's the thing. If you are taller than the bed... Probably you. <laughs> Procrastus will chop off a limb. If you are shorter than the bed, look no further. Procrastus will put you on the rack and stretch you out. But when you wake up in the morning, you will be the ideal proportions of a Greek person. The only problem is no one walks out there without a limp. And you know what? That's a problem often in church. Because the problem is often we like to peddle moral codes to people without having them have an encounter with a powerful God. You know what's the problem with that? People limp out here. They might look better, but they never changed really in the process. See, let's not reduce church to moral codes. It is important. Morality is important. But, but God is far more than that. There's a second way in which church tends to reduce God. There's a group of Christians, well, not really Christians, heretics, uh, in the first couple of centuries that called themselves Gnostics. And the word Gnostic comes from Google Gnosis, that means secret knowledge. And the understanding of that was, 
if you had secret knowledge about the ways of God, then you could twist the arm of God in such a way that you get what you want. Then you are initiated. Then you have a secret knowledge. Then you are in the know. Then you're not like the sheep. You are special. You are different. You are distinct. You are elevated. All right, we can talk lots and lots about that, but that's one thing about the Gnostics. They believed in secret knowledge that they only acquired, which often ended up in sort of recipes. The second thing is that they believed that the material world is evil and the spiritual world is good, and therefore they tended to shun the material world and only focus on the spiritual world. What am I trying to say with that? What I'm trying to say with that, in our experience with God, we can easily reduce God to a couple of recipes. If I just pray in this way, if I just pitch my faith in this way, if I just say this and this, if I just read this or say that or tend this or do that, if I just do it in the right order, in the right way, then. But you know the problem is in the end I become a magician and God becomes a slave to my magic. But here's the thing, God is not like that. God is not like that. I will not be able to rubber arm God. I will not be able to control God. There will be times in your life where you really pray for something and God will tell you no. There will be times in your life where you really pray for something and God will say yes. But ultimately, it is a relationship with God. It's not a relationship with a recipe. Now we know this. In marriage, we know this. The moment you reduce your spouse to a recipe, you're in trouble. Because guess what? Your husband, he's not a chocolate cake. Your wife, she's not a choppy that you put on the braai. We far more complex than that as human beings. How much more complex and wonderful and amazing God is not. So the issue of church is to explore the fullness and the vastness of the glory of God and stand in awe of them, and we can never learn enough. We can never say we have arrived. We can never say we know what is to know. The moment a church does that, the moment the church settles, is the moment the church dies. And I tell you what, that happens easy. You might not be in that space now, but I promise you one day you will be tempted to say this is enough, this is okay, this is manageable. And in that moment, it slips through your fingers. And God becomes a house cat instead of a vast line of Judah. See, who do I serve? Who do I worship? Now, what I'd like to do this evening is almost do like a statement of faith. This is who I believe Christ to be from Scripture. Now we're getting to Scripture. Hallelujah. I'm not going to have it on there, so if you've got a Bible with you or the smartphone app, now is the time to pull out that smartphone and impress me with the amazing app that you have. Not Facebook, the Bible. That amazing app. And we're going to read it together. This is a statement of faith for me. This is the expanse. This is the scope of the supremacy of Christ, the fullness of who is Christ. And I'm going to read from Colossians 1, verse 15 to 23. I'm going to read from New Living Translation. It is quite a mouthful. And then I'm going to look at the scope of the supremacy of God. And let it stretch our faith a bit tonight. I mean, we, 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 we can't have a fullness of describing who God is, but we can stretch our faith. We can stretch our faith. 
And it says the following. Now, remember, we're talking about supremacy, and I'll explain that just now. It says, Christ is a visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to dwell or live in Christ. And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace of everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who once far away from God. You were his enemies. I was his enemy. Separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result he has brought you into his presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world. And I, Paul, had been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. The key word here is the supremacy of Christ. What does the word supremacy mean? When we say something is supreme, what do we mean? In the first place, we mean that it is the most important when we say that Christ is supreme, we are saying that Christ is the most important thing. Who is the most important person here tonight? Christ. You are important. And we are thankful that you are here. But Christ is the most important. Who is more important? Am I more important? Is Christ more important? See, many Christians compete with Christ to be the most important person. But you know what? In that relationship, Christ cannot be supreme. And if you are supreme, can you uphold your own supremacy? No. Christ is the most important. You know what the Bible says? And let me tell you this. The scripture regularly offends me. If you don't read scripture and go like, no, this really, I, I really don't like this. You're not really reading it. Scripture offends me all the time. I'm all the time going like, no, 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 no. Let me rewrite this, please. I'll put it aside. But thank God that is not possible, right? I mean, Scripture is from God. But I tell you what, Scripture says that all humanity is like the grass. You see, even though we are loved, even though we are created, in comparison with the supremacy of Christ, we are but grass that fades away. If you cannot accept that, your life will be very difficult. Because you will live your whole life trying to be God. And that is not possible. Because you are not. And I am not. Supreme means most important. Supreme also means of highest authority. You know what that means? Nothing is of greater authority. Nothing has, no one has greater authority than Jesus. Cancer hasn't got greater authority than Jesus. Death, no greater authority than Jesus. No government, no ruler, 
not Satan, not angels, not demons, not height, not death. Nothing can say to Jesus, go and sit in the corner. Nothing can command him and tell him what to do. Whatever he decides to do is done. Whatever he sets out to do is done. Whatever he speaks is done. Christ is supreme. What is supreme in your life? Supreme means of a highest importance. It means of a highest authority. But it also means of a highest beauty. Nothing is more beautiful. See, that's why the way in which heaven is described in Bible is often described in a scene of worship. And you know why it's described as a scene of worship? Because to see Christ is to worship. Because his beauty will move us to worship. Nothing is more beautiful. Christ is supreme. Now Colossians here talks about the supremacy of Christ and it says, let's talk about the scope of the supremacy of Christ. It's fine to say that he's supreme in his importance. He's supreme in his authority. He's supreme in his beauty. But in which areas is the supremacy demonstrated? And it gives us three areas here. Remember, this for me is like a statement of faith, the supremacy of Christ, the bigness, the vastness of Christ and his supremacy. And here is three areas, the scope of the supremacy of Christ. In the first place, place, Colossians talks about he is supreme in his deity. It says, if we go to the next slide there, the fullness of God dwells in him. Christ is supreme in his deity. Christ is not a good teacher. Christ is not a good man. Christ is not a good example. He's all those things, but he's much more than that. Christ is not another path to God. Christ is not a good idea. His sayings is not a nice afterthought. Christ is supreme in his deity, which means that the fullness of God dwells in him, which means when you have Christ, you can have nothing more because you have everything. And when you don't have Christ, you will have nothing because everything dwells within him. Why is this important? Because the problem is that often we're tempted to move beyond Christ. Can I just be honest? For many Christians, it it becomes a case of Christ and. Christ and. And you know what? There's many good causes out there. There's many good doctrines out there. There's many good viewpoints out there. There's many good things we can do out there. There's many good things we can pursue. But nothing can never, ever rival the supremacy of Christ. We can never say Christ and the Holy Spirit baptism. Holy Spirit baptism is important. Christ and missions. Missions is important. But I tell you what, it's only Christ. All those things are important. Please don't get me wrong. All those things we need to do, please don't get me wrong. But I tell you what, in the end of the day, our reward is Christ. Our life is Christ. It's nothing more, there's nothing less. If you have Christ, you have the fullness of God. We have a fullness of God. See, for many of us, I live, I work, I operate in an area that is highly ambitious, highly idealistic. I have people coming into the city every year, and they want to change the world. They want to have an ambitious career life. They want to do something awesome and amazing. And I tell you what, it's great, but here's the only problem. I can be the CEO of the biggest conglomerate, But if I don't have Christ, I have nothing. 
I can have the best family, most amazing spouse, but if I don't have Christ, I have nothing. I tell you what, I can be the street sweeper, but if I have Christ, I have everything. I can be single, I can be without children, I can be bereft of many things, but if I have Christ, I have everything. Because the fullness of God dwells within him. This is my statement of faith. This is the statement of faith of scriptures. How big is your Christ? Is your Christ big enough to fill the horizon of your career ambitions, your family dreams and hopes? Yes, a career is important. Yes, family is important. But let's have it in the right order. Augustine, the early church father, said that sin is always a result of love that is not ordered in the right place. That we have an inordinate love for things in the way that we should, should not have for them. That we love certain things more than we ought not to love it. C.S. Lewis put it the other way. He says that we have many natural loves in this world, but if we give all our love and our most important love to our natural loves, whether it be love for a career or love for a spouse or love for children, all those loves are good. All of those expressions are given by God. But when we give it for greatest love, that love turns into something bad. Because that love is a love for idol in the end of the day. And when we worship an idol, something that is good, our love for a spouse, becomes something that is demonic. Sorry, that is quite harsh. That's okay, I'm leaving tomorrow. So <laughs> I guess I can say something quite boom in your face. Thank you for coming. I'm leaving tomorrow. Sorry about that. But I need to say that to myself. Do I love preaching more than Jesus? Do I love my wife more than Jesus? See, I should love preaching. You can see I'm enjoying it. Even with a jacket on. Uppington, good stuff. I love my spouse. She's awesome, hey? Man, I am married to a woman. You know, a lot of people can say they love their wives, but I tell you what, I love my wife and I respect my wife. She's a medical doctor. She can inject me with funky stuff if I'm not careful. I tell you what, I respect my wife. I respect her. It's good. Amen. Let's go on. All right. Hallelujah. Inspired marriage. It's good. Let's go on. Where was I? Oh, yes. There's many things that we should love, many things we should enjoy, but sometimes I feel that we say that we love Jesus like we love strawberry ice cream. And that is the basis for sin. That's where sin starts. When I have Jesus, I have everything. Because Christ is supreme in his deity. There's no other way to God. There's no other shortcuts. There's no other negotiation table. It's only Christ. The second way in which the scripture says that Christ is supreme, that he's of highest importance, highest authority, of highest beauty, is that he's supreme in creation. That everything has been created through him, for him. And here's the thing. If we go to the next slide, it says that all things is held together in him. Now, here's the thing. When I look at creation, and when you look at creation, I often see chaos. Right? News 24, open it. You don't see, hey, hey, nice order. You see chaos. And then you read the comments, and then you go like, okay. All right? We see chaos. 
You might look at your own life story, you might look at your own environment, where you come from, what you've experienced, and you might say, but this is not, that, that, that everything is created through him, for him, and that he holds all things together, he controls everything. Yeah, right? Where was God? See, this is a real dilemma that we face. But I want to tell you that yes, yes, when we look at creation, yes, when we look at humanity, yes, when we look at our own life story, we see a lot of chaos, we see a lot of hurt, we see a lot of decay, we see a lot of problems. But I tell you what, we serve a God that can take even the bad things that happen, even the chaos that happens, and he can make something good out of it. We serve a God that redeems. It's not his perfect will. It's not his good will that all this happens in this, in this world. But we serve a God that can take a cross and he can make it a sign of redemption. Jesus holds all things together. I don't hold all things together. I wish I did. I like, I like my little bit of control. Don't get me wrong. TV remote for life, I'll buy it. Hmm? Volume down. Channel change. I like it. If it was a remote TV remote for life, I'd buy it. You buy it. I like my little bit of control. We all like it. But I'm not in control. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know the tough things that I'm going to face and that you're going to face. But I tell you what, this is my declaration of faith. That I serve a God who is supreme in holding all things together. And yes, I might go through the fire now. And yes, I might go through the valley of shadow of death now. But I serve a God that when heaven comes, all things will be made right. And he personally will wipe every tear from every face. And there will be no sun because he will be the light in the midst of all of us. That is a God that I serve. Now, years ago, somebody called me and said, go and uh, please pray for this guy in the hospital and I don't know, maybe Andre likes that. But I'm always daunted by that because I'm like, what am I supposed to do here? And this is the story. The guy, he is a young man. He got attacked at a petrol station by some youths, all right? And these youths, by the way, were from a private school. Parents exceptionally rich. And they attacked this young man, rammed his head into a car, and he's got, uh, I think, a sort of rare genetic disorder that makes his bone quite brittle, broke his neck, paralyzed. Please go and pray for him. Now, here's my problem. What do I say to him? That's my problem. Maybe that's not your problem, but that's my problem. So I'm driving in there. I'm like, shucks. As I parked the car, as I climbed out, I really felt God say to me, listen, tell him that he will walk again. Whether he walks in five days, whether he walks in five years, whether he walks in 50 years, or whether he walks in eternity, my kingdom, there is no lame. There's no crippled. Because see, I make all things new. That is a God that I serve. It's just a matter of timing. It's just a matter of timing. Christ is supreme in his deity. Christ is supreme in creation. And lastly, I'm finishing up with that. Christ is supreme in the church. Yes, and the church is a mixed bag. The church is not perfect. Augustine, I mentioned him earlier. 
probably shouldn't give you this quote. This is quite rough as well. But the early church was they were often quite rough. But can you handle it? Can I give you a rough quote? And don't worry, we're getting to the end of this. It's going to get a bit, bit better, I promise you. Ozin said that the church might be a harlot. I'm using the polite word. He used a different word. The church might be a harlot, but she's still my mother. See, the church is not perfect because it's filled with people. But I thank God. I thank God that the church is not perfect because if the church was perfect, there'd be no place for me. There'd be no place for you. I thank God that he takes in the lame. Remember that, that parable? Remember the parable of the man that invites to the great feast and all the ones that seem to be the right candidates to invite the wealthy, uh, the, the inform, uh, the, uh, the relationally connected. They all said, no, thank you. And then he invites the lame, the crippled, the blind. And that is the church. And that is me. And I'm thankful for that. Because otherwise I wouldn't get an invite. That's just the honest truth. But you see, my statement of faith is not that the church is perfect, but my statement of faith is that Christ is supreme in the church. And then it says that in the church, he is the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? What it means is that the proof of the supremacy of Christ lies not in him becoming flesh. The proof of the supremacy of Christ does not lie in that he was crucified. The proof of the supremacy of Christ lies in the fact that he rose from the dead. He overcame death. And when, then when it says he's the firstborn, what that means when it says that he's firstborn, it means he's not the last. He's just the first. And the church is a place of resurrection. That's what it means. But we bring our broken lives and our broken idols and our struggles. You know, you might be a Christian and you still need resurrection. This is a place of resurrection. Not because we're perfect, but because Christ has risen from the dead. And if he's the first, he's not the last. So I'm standing in that line. Yes, I am. And you know, the biggest mistake that you can do is to climb out of a line. To climb out of a queue. Because your time is coming where Christ will resurrect everything. But will you be there when he resurrects? And that's why the Bible then ends off and it says... But the most important thing in the statement of faith is to don't drift away. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news.